Brent, are you ready? I am ready. Okay, let's um, let's get started here. So, uh, you know, welcome as, again to the hot aisle. I'm excited to be here. I'm going to take my excitement volume up to 11 because I'm just excited to be here. And uh, I'm, having, I'm having fun today. It is Friday. And um, this show, the goal of this show, by the way, let's do the, Let's rewind. See, I got excited. I didn't do my little <laughs> flow. So I'm, I'm Brian Carpenter and with me. Brent Piatti, good Ooh. morning. And you know, look, we're we're I think we're sixty episodes into this thing. We've yeah. been doing it for shoot, almost I think coming on a year and a half, two years, something like that. Yeah. So I thought you had the intro on lock, but I can understand your excitement because we do have a good guest today and it yeah. should be fun to dig into. I'm just excited. I it might be the pitcher of coffee my wife made me. It could be anything. We just never know. Um, so the goal of this show is to kind of let's we're gonna talk about NAS. We're gonna ta- we're gonna get all sorts of nerdy with NAS. Really, kind of talk about how things might be changing. Um, you know, whether it's you know this whole the cloud thing is really changing the way we have to look at how we do certain things uh, and what that means to the way people might consume their NAS, right? And so, uh, with us this week is none other than Ron Bianchini. Did I do it well, Bianchini? Bianchini, man, you nailed it the first time. Boom. Well, I, I didn't know how Italian. I, I did put my fingers together when I said it, so. Ron Bianchini uh, from uh, from Avir. So, Ron, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. It's great to be here. Yeah, we're uh, it's fun. We've been before. We were talking about the Steelers and um, you know the the Iron Curtain there, and we were talking about the Cowboys. And you know, not everybody cares about sports ball, and that's fine. Uh, but everybody does care about where they're going to put their unstructured content, uh, and that's what NAS is all about. So. Um, let's talk to Ron, who is the president and co-founder of Avir Systems. Um, so you've been there for uh, about nine years, and um, you know before that you were at a couple of other places. So why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about your kind of run-up in technology before you got to Avir? We always like to hear where people came from. It tells us a lot about them. Great. So I, I started as a professor at Carnegie Mellon University. Um, I actually... So, and then I was there about seven years teaching in computer engineering. And then I left and started my first company in networking. That company, Scalable Networks, was acquired by uh, a big ATM company at the time, Four Systems. Actually, um, a couple of other faculty members and one of my ex-students uh, were founders of that company. So I got acquired by Four and actually reported to my ex-student. Um, I think it was a kind of little turn of irony there. Um, when, once we got acquired, how good of a student was he, by the way, he was good, actually very good. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So immediately when I realized who I was going to be reporting to, I had to think back on all the grades I'd given him through the years and he was a brilliant guy. So it worked out well. (laughs) Awesome. So you're at four for a while and, uh, what, what all did you do there? What else, uh, what else were you working on after that? Right. So at four, we did uh, ATM networking. I stayed there for about four years, actually. And then I left to get back to data storage. One of my research areas at Carnegie Mellon was data storage. And then the company I started with a um, co- few other co-founders, Spinnaker Networks, was all about clustered file systems and clustered NAS. And of course, we ran um, Spinnaker for about four years and then that got sold to Network Appliance in 2004. So Spinnaker, we started in 2000. We sold it in 2004 to Network Appliance. And of course, uh, NetApp ONTAP cluster mode is based on the IP that we created at Spinnaker. Awesome. So, and you, uh, what at, at NetApp, you were basically, 
you know, kind of uh, VP of C mode, or what all did you do for NetApp while you were there? Right. So I I was really uh, the uh, senior vice president running um, that group. Of course, I had a, a VP of engineering from Spinnaker who was actually doing the engineering of it. But me, it was all about interfacing with customers and really driving the adoption of C mode. Yeah, that sounds like fun. So you know, we you mentioned Carnegie Mellon, and again, we always I always like to bring this up: a PhD in uh, electrical and computer engineering from Car- Carnegie Mellon. That's no joke. We love to talk to PhDs. It's always really interesting to see who somebody who's done that much, um, you know, kind of investment in their education. So tell me about your tell me about your thesis. You said it was in storage. So uh, was your thesis actually focused on storage, or just mainly part of your education was? So my my it's my thesis was actually on routing in networks. Mm-hmm. Um, it was and it was very theoretical. It was uh, multi commodity network flows and how you can schedule multi-commodity flows in a network. And it turns out multi-commodity flow scheduling is an NP-complete problem, but everyone's always looking for solutions that can solve it in in reasonable amount of time. And I had I had an algorithm that solved it for periodic traffic, and um, it was a lot of fun. But, but so that was kind of my thesis. That's what got me uh, to become a professor, but as a professor, it moved more towards big, widely distributed systems and how you coordinate storage among those systems. And so was that where, like as you worked on your dissertation, you're focused on you know, distributed systems. Is that actually the focus of your dissertation as well? Or um, what did you do that on? Yeah, so that's right. So the, I would say big, widely distributed systems has kind of been through everything I did. Um, the dissertation, the PhD was all about um, traffic scheduling and routing in big distributed networks. And then um, as I got into more research, it was the coordination. One of the big issues you have in large distributed systems is how do you get the systems to agree on anything? How do you get consistency among them? And so really, um, um, the, the first problem you have to get the nodes in a widely distributed system to agree to is who's in the system and trustworthy and who's out of the system. It's called um, self-diagnosis. And one, only once you can solve self-diagnosis can you then solve larger, bigger distributed problems like coordinating data in data storage. Well, none of that stuff I understood, but I'm, <laughs> I'm sure it's fascinating. <laughs> well, you know, it's just interesting, right? So, um, uh, you, you've you've obviously carved a, a path uh, in in technology and, and, and a deep passion for it. I mean, your undergrad uh, is in electrical and computer engineering from MIT. Something led you here. So, like, what led to, led you down that path in technology? Something that had to get you excited. And then the other question is, what do you consider yourself, a nerd or a geek? <laughs> That's good. So, look, honestly, what got me started down this path. Um, was my father. My father was um, on the faculty at uh, NYU. He would come home with teletype machines. He would. We had 300-baud modems that were acoustically coupled to the phone that you stuck down into the modem. And um, so he really got me spun up on technology. And um, it just kind of spiraled from there. I, I you know, born and raised in Brooklyn, went to school in uh, Stuyvesant High School in Manhattan, then went up to MIT undergrad and it really just snowballed. And really, my dad was the big inspiration, but my parents 
um, truly let me follow uh, the path to its fullest extent to get a PhD. Is it is it weird being from New York, and is it is it like cheating on the soul of New York to go to MIT? Yeah, you know, especially as your dad was from M- NYU. I mean, it feels like Boston and New York are on this in this cultural argument, right? Of like who's in charge of the 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 culture of the U.S. and the history of the U.S. So is that weird at all? You know, it's only a little bit. I'm a New Yorker, born and bred, um, and it's it's really. I would say for me, it's between Boston and Pittsburgh because I've been in Pittsburgh over 30 years now. And, you know, my kid's blood runs black and gold. You can't mess with the Berg. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, Brent, I didn't mean to die. I didn't mean to diverge. I just see somebody. It's like I felt like he wore like a Yankees hat into MIT on day one. Right. So it's like, go ahead, Brent. <laughs> no, that's, you know, that's cool. That's cool, man. No, so, so the, the the nerd and geek thing, man, it's 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 an ongoing debate, and I've seen like infographics that try to break out the difference between the two. I think that would be a phenomenal thesis to do. I would probably actually understand more of those things. But uh, do do you identify with one camp or the other? You know, so the interesting thing is, um, all of my employees here tell me that I have left either nerd or geek and have gone to the dark side. Because as CEO, it's all about bookings and revenue, and it's all about converting sales. And so it's funny. I feel like I'm, a, I'm an island because all the engineers tell me I'm not a nerd or a geek anymore. And all the sales guys like, well, he's got a PhD. How could he be one of us? <laughs> okay. Awesome. Well, right on. Let's help you convert some sales right now. So right. Avere Systems, tell us when it started and a little bit about it, and then we'll start to dive into the technology. Great. So we started in 2008. And um, if you think about what was going on in the world in 2008, it was all about flash storage. People, you know, flash was coming to the scene. It was getting bigger. Um, You're right. The the amount of rights you can commit to it were getting better and better. And it looked like it was clearly going to be a data center technology. And everyone was trying to figure out how they were going to use flash in the data center. And so what, if, you, if you think about what was happening in 2008, there were really two camps. There were the people that had products in market, and they were trying to figure out the easiest way to get Flash in. Um, and then there were the new incumbents, and they were saying that everything becomes Flash. And so we, we kind of picked a, an approach that's different from both of those. So, so let me, um, if you don't mind, I'm going to jump in and talk about those two for a minute. No, that's why you're Absolutely. here. Absolutely, go ahead. Great. So, so the incumbents... You know, they have their file system ready, and typically they've been in market 10, 20 years at that point. Think NetApp, EMC, and, and the big goal was to leverage the performance of Flash um, into the storage solutions they had. And so the most common solution, think NetApp with their Flash cache card or, or EMC and Isilon, would it be to take a PCI card full of Flash and stuff that into the server and then try to leverage that as much as possible. Well, if you don't write, if you don't rewrite your file system, that card um, becomes the role of a read cache. So what happened is your file system would operate. If the data was in RAM, you would serve it. If not, typically you'd go to disk. What these guys would do is they would stage it in the flash, and then they would serve reads out of it. Well, so that's a it's a very good architecture, especially if you have a pre-existing file system that you don't want to take apart and rewrite. But the negative of doing a read-only cache is that your hit rate, your offload in that flash is only going to be about 30%. All your modified, all your writes, all your updates 
are going to have to get pushed all the way back to disk and into the core of the file system. So, so we saw a lot of the incumbents putting Flash into their products, typically getting about a 30% bump when they did that. Um, so that's kind of one camp. The other camp were all the new incumbents saying, hey, look, Flash is getting cheaper and cheaper dramatically every year. We think an all-Flash solution is the way to go. So think of a company like Pure Storage. And the interesting thing about that is in 2008 when we started the company, the cost delta between Flash and Disk was about 10 to 1. Well, where we are today, the cost delta is still 10 to 1. So while Flash is driving their prices down, so is Disk. And so I think the only problem with an all-Flash solution is if you have a very large data set, paying that 10x cost for putting it in Flash is cost prohibitive. And so, so I think you'll see the all-Flash solution in places where the data fits in Flash. Think of a small database where you can run out of Flash, and then you'll get all of the Flash performance for doing it. So there's a benefit. But for big, large repositories, I still think you, you want disk as where the big bulk storage is. And so what Avir did, so we didn't go down either of those camps. We kind of went down the center, which is what we really want is a storage solution where all the transactions go to Flash, all the transactions, read, write, data, metadata. But we want a storage solution where the big bulk storage is in disk. And effectively, what that is is a read-write cache. And so in 2008, we proposed an architecture, we called it Edge Core, where the Avir product, the Edge filer, sat in front of a big bulk repository core filer, and it did read-write caching. And because we're caching both reads and writes, instead of a 30% offload into Flash, we're able to run at about 98% offload into Flash. And so because of that, you don't get 100% Flash performance, but effectively your users see Flash performance for every op, even though the data is stored in disk. Oh, very cool. So taking advantage of, of, of Flash and um, also spinning media solutions, but being able to provide that kind of very, uh, very large front-end cache, if you will, uh, for that data. What are, what are the typical workloads that are being able to take advantage of, say, 98% uh, front-loading? Because, you know, if we, if we just kind of think in general, the rule of thumb is called a 70-30 read-write ratio, maybe even an 80-20. Um, what, what's, what's actually driving? What are the workloads that you're seeing in that unstructured world on Avir systems? Right. So the way, the way we – so the, the, that really – let me explain one more piece about architecture, and then I think I can answer that question very effectively. So you said it exactly right. It's a very large flash cache. One of our nodes, a 1U box, holds 9 terabytes of flash. And we scale from 1 all the way up to 50 of those. So you can see you can drive very large flash caches. That's how you hide the latency of the disk that's behind us. And the way our solution works, if you only have one of our nodes, we never want to act a write unless there's two copies of the data. That's a given in the enterprise. Because if you act it and then you fail, that write, that update is lost, and you can never have that happen. So if you have one of our nodes, we go into write-through mode. So when the write comes in, we push it all the way back to disk, and then we act it. As soon as you have two nodes, when that write comes in, we make sure two nodes have it, and then we act locally without ever having to see the disk latency. Only asynchronously later in time do we write the data back. So the way you should think of our architecture is 
once you have two nodes in a cluster, every write, 100% of writes are act locally. And those writes could be data, metadata, ACLs, directory. So our write-off load effectively is infinite. And now our read-off load is a, is a function of how many of our nodes you have. A three-node cluster, you have 27 terabytes of read cache. If that's not enough, if you're seeing your offload rate falling down, you buy a fourth, and then you have 36 terabytes. So infinite write-off load, once you have two nodes, read-off load is a linear function of the number of nodes you buy. And so, so if I answer then your question is, what workloads do we work well in? The way we describe it to our customers is, think of two data sizes. Think of the data set, all the data you ever want to write. You go buy enough disk for that. Then think of your working set. How much data are you actually computing on in any given day? Buy enough flash for that. And now your active working set lives in flash, yet your full data set is back on disk behind us. So as you, so if we rewind a little bit, you know, you mentioned some of the prop, like essentially the, the kind of architectural issues that you saw from the competition. As you started your company, you're sitting around and you're, you're one of the founders, you said a co-founder, were there uh, two of you in a Starbucks that were you know, drinking some coffee and said, uh, you know, kind of had an aha moment and said, man, this is it. Are you, you know, were you solving a problem? And then had you already left NetApp or was this not something, a problem that you wanted to solve at NetApp? Or you know, how, did, you know, how does that kind of happen? Where did you, you kind of get your, this is a company moment? Right, so the, that's a great question. The, the issue with the incumbents, um, I think, well, let me describe a problem that we'd be presented back when, when I was at Spinnaker and at NetApp. A customer would come to us and said they needed to store more data. Well, what would we tell them? we tell them, buy more disk. What if the customer comes to you and says, hey, I'm not getting the performance I need. What should I do? Our answer was buy more disk. Even if they weren't, the disks weren't full because they needed more disk arms. Um, and so, so the, the, if you think about the incumbents, there really wasn't a lot driving them to find the most efficient flash solution because they were driving disk arrays. We've had customers you know, across the storage industry that were not full in disk capacity, but were buying arrays simply to get more arms to get more performance. So this was a very fundamental change in that we're looking for efficiencies. I think that the storage industry wasn't ready to deliver to their customer. Okay. And so you've been around for a while. Um, are you still fundamentally doing what you kind of set out to do? You know, we see things like now, um, you know, in the conversation for you, just like for everybody is, you know, cloud and scale and things like that. Um, when you started, were you really thinking about the scale that we see today in data centers? And was, were you really thinking about where customers were going to take these workloads and use cases for, for unstructured out into other people's data centers? Like were those parts of your thought processes? Right. Excellent question. So if you think about what I've presented so far, I haven't used the word cloud at all. So in 2008, it was all about how, what is the most efficient way of introducing Flash into the data center? And then, so we released our product um, probably in 2010, and customers started using it. And what we found is customers not only were using it in the data center, but they were using it across wide area. So imagine um, if you have users here in Pittsburgh talking to an edge filer in Pittsburgh, 
the bulk storage could be in Pittsburgh or it could be halfway around the world, maybe in Europe. It turns out with a 98% offload, you are hiding the latency back to the core filer. The user only sees it a fraction of a time. And that fraction of a time is totally tunable by how many of our nodes you buy to get the right read offload you want. So what we found is we started in the data center and our customers were using us to hide WAN latency. And so that, I think, was probably the big eureka moment, which was, hey, this read-write cache turns out to be an incredible, incredible tool for enabling cloud services, really for enabling hybrid cloud services. So imagine you can run your compute in Pittsburgh against an edge filer in Pittsburgh. The repository can be a NetApp filer in Pittsburgh, or it could be Amazon S3. The users will see no difference in the enterprise NAS experience. The performance is the same, the transaction counts the same, because we've effectively hid that latency to the storage. That was the big eureka moment. It was customers driving our WAN use case. And so you kind of, you've given me another question there. You, you mentioned, you know, so your, it appears that your focus is really on that kind of front end cache appliance, as well as your, obviously you've got your file system by which you have to present out all those different services, um, which are kind of, you know, the services are table stakes for, for the NAS world, but uh, the back end, the actual spinning media or the lower cost portion can be existing file systems or existing can it be block? Can it be object? Like, what is that? What are those backend experiences that they can you can kind of present up and and make you know cohesive from that perspective? Great. So when we started, the backend needed to be NAS. So we 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 absolutely you know customer adoption. So I told you I went to the dark side. I'm a salesman now, right? Mm -hmm. So when we started the company, having this cool um, 98% hit rate, this cool read write cache was great, but how could we drive customer adoption? So when we started, we insisted that the product would work cold in front of a pre-existing backend. And so it was very important that we're able to do that. So when we, when we very first started the company, 1.0 was an edge filer in front of a NAS backend. And, and what, we, what we learned is, you know, NAS backends were great, but as people moved to the cloud, it really had to be about objects. And so now we've added, probably in um, 2014, we added the ability to do object backend as well. So, so if you think of the edge core architecture, out the front to clients, it's NFS and SMB. Out the back, it's either NAS protocols, if we talk to a NAS filer, or it's objects for us to do the storage. That's great. So we're talking yeah, S3, Swift, something to that effect. That's right. We have customers running um, S3, GCS. We have customers running Swift, OpenStack Swift. We have customers with Ampladata, CleverSafe out the back, a big object interface. Okay. And then from a, you know, we've kind of led down this path now to to the public cloud offering. So um, you you have some some virtual appliances. Tell us about those and 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 the scalability of those and 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 how they how they really work for you guys. Great. So. We, we talk about um, our product and where it fits in terms of use cases. So the first use case, uh, 1.0 product, we call NAS optimization. That's the edge core. There's a NAS filer on-prem. There's um, our edge filer on-prem. 
and we communicate NFS to the clients and NFS to the, to the back end. That's all on-prem. And then I kind of alluded to the cloud gateway model. So the cloud gateway is our physical boxes on-prem, nine terabytes a node, um, talking to an object store. That object store could either be on-prem or up in the public cloud. But then, so, so gateway, I think, is pretty well understood. You have your users in, in our life science customers. There's a the big genomic sequencing machines. Um, they're talking to our edge filer, and then we're putting the data up to the public cloud. So I think gateway model is pretty well known. Um, then in 2015, we announced just the reverse of the gateway model. Think of it exactly backwards of what the gateway is, which is we have customers that have data on-prem. They have a big infrastructure of NetApp or Isilon, but they want to leverage the compute infrastructure that's up in the cloud. They want to leverage this infinitely scalable cloud resources of CPU cores. And, and so what we did is we took the software that runs in our appliance, we compiled it to run up, and today it runs in Amazon, Google, and Microsoft. And now you can create a cluster of two to 50 nodes up in those cloud providers, and you can do exactly the opposite. So you can have compute up in the cloud communicating to an edge filer, which is just a piece of software now running up in the, in the cloud compute environment. And, and um, actually, let me use Amazon notation. So imagine our nodes are running up in EC2. We use the flash storage in EBS, in the Elastic Block Store. That becomes the cache. And now for the repository, you could either keep the data in S3 or you can point back to a filer on-prem. That use case, computing the cloud, talking to an Avir cluster in the cloud, reaching back on-prem to a NAS mount point, um, Avir is unique in that. And that is our bursting capability. We have customers in media entertainment, in financial services that are running tens of thousands of cores in the cloud against a data set that's on-prem and they're getting the same performance as the nodes on-prem sitting right next to the data. Hmm. That's, I mean, that's, uh, that's kind of really interesting. So you're saying if I had like a, a glut of data on-prem um, and it was, you know, into petabytes or whatever, and I didn't really feel like I wanted to move it up for various reasons. Maybe I have locality issues or whatever, um, but I wanted to be able to leverage off-prem and use, you know, use Amazon or Google's cloud to also run some workload. I can put a, you know, an edge caching, you know, NAS type device there and present that up and allow them to use it in a, you know, basically an experience that feels like that data is as proximal to it as it is for those servers that are on-prem. Exactly. Spot that's, on. That's really cool. That's interesting. And, and so I'll give you a really good example of this. We have um, customers in um, financial services that the amount of compute they need uh, they do risk analysis on trades, and the amount of compute they need is a function of the volatility in the market. On low, volatile, low volatility days, maybe they only need 10,000, 20,000 cores because that's all the transactions. They're not doing a lot of research. But maybe on high volatility days, they need 40,000, 50,000 cores to run the compute. And so prior to Avir, they'd have to invest in the 50,000, and then they would only be using the piece of it that they needed on any given day. So we have customers now, what they do is they'll buy like a baseload amount of cores. So maybe they need 10,000 or 20,000 cores and that they can run 90, 98% of the time. 
But on those high volatility days, we allow them to spin up more up in the cloud. So one of the customers in particular, 20,000 cores on-prem, and then they could augment that with tens of thousands. I think our peak at this point is 60,000 parallel cores in the cloud. So they run on those high volatility days, they run 80,000 cores. The cloud resources to them are as efficient as the on-prem resources, and they only spin them up on the days they need them. Yeah, that makes great sense. You know, you know, from a from an overall agility perspective, a a uh, the consumption model it, it absolutely it works out. So uh, because you've you've brought that that up, so this opex model, this pay by the drip model, um, are you guys tackling that from uh, from an edge gateway or an Avere model, or do you, do they still need to buy the the licenses up front and then um, you know kind of figure it out from there? No, it's it's complete. We, you know, it's like anything else, um, we, depending on how much you buy or the discount levels you get. So there's an hourly mod, there's an hourly price for running our nodes. If you commit to a whole month, you get a discount on that. If you commit to a whole year, you get a discount on that. So it's really pay as you go. Oh, very cool. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I guess it makes sense to match up with the model that that's so lucrative or not lucrative necessarily, but appealing, um, for, you know, for scale out computing in the cloud. So very, very cool. Um, so if, as we look at as the, the product as it stands today, uh, we're, we're solving some some kind of uh, neat neat workloads and, and uh, problems out there. What's what's next for you guys, and what problems are you trying to solve that maybe you haven't already? You know, it's it's. Um, I think Brian said this earlier. What what we want our customers to believe is their data is right next to them, no matter where the data is being stored. We want to hide that distance, hide that latency. So everything driving what we do is we base And if you think about the architecture, I think it's a very um, sane and straightforward architecture. You want a cache as close to your users. You want a cache as close to the point where you want low latency. And you want that cache to consume as many of the ops as possible. That drives the read-write cache. And then you want the data to be anywhere. And so I think the big, the big architecture that we present is put a veer, whether it's physical boxes or software in the cloud, put that as close to your compute as possible. And now we don't care where the data is stored. You can store it anywhere. And then, you know, the kind of the, the one piece of our architecture that we didn't really talk about is we actually give you the ability to change the location of the, your data on the fly while your apps are running. So um, let me talk about that for a minute because I think the biggest adoption right now is helping customers adopt, the biggest adoption in our product right now is helping customers adopt the cloud. So imagine you're using us on-prem in NAS optimization. So your users, your compute, everything's on-prem, your veer nodes are on-prem, and you're storing data in NetApp. And imagine you want to move the data up to the cloud. Literally, you go in our graphic interface, you go in our GUI, three mouse clicks, and the data is migrating up to Google, let's say. The whole time, your applications are live. And it's very straightforward. If you think about the way our architecture works, remember I said we terminate all rights in the edge filer. So the whole, while that migration is happening, nothing changes in the user experience. Writes are terminated in the edge filer. Reads, we go to wherever your primary store is and we cold fill reads. 
So the whole front end, the whole user experience stays the same. And then what we do is we start a copy. We do a tree walk and we start copying data up to the cloud. What has to change? Only asynchronously, minutes, hours after the write was committed, when it's time for us to asynchronously write it back, it, without doing a migration, we write it back to the one core filer. During the migration, we write it to both because that's the absolute most conservative. And now what I can tell you when that tree walk is done, the source and the dest are absolutely the same, either because I've copied the data over or because the data is, or the right data is in both or is queued to get to both. And so, so now I can allow customers migrate to the cloud, migrate back out of the cloud, the whole time their applications are live and there's no hiccup whatsoever. So I think our biggest adoption right now we talked about financial services moving compute to the cloud in a bursting way. We also also now allow our customers to move their data to the cloud. The whole time, apps are live. That's uh, that's really interesting. So, I mean, conceptually, and if I were to understand this, um, you know what you're saying. If you're you mentioned you have like a rental system and things like that, could somebody rent your product for a month to help them simply migrate between two different places or even just simply they're doing a refresh and their product is not uh, something that does online refreshes or things like that. So they've got a, a file system. Maybe it has to be dedicated on-prem for governance reasons. And they simply need to be able to move between two different ones. And there's not a, there's not a built-in process for that. Is that something they could rent from you as well? Uh, so, so I definitely should make that clear. We are, our hourly, monthly, yearly is for our software that runs in the cloud. On-prem, we sell an appliance. Okay. So that is a box that they would need to buy. Okay. But actually, that, it's a great question, Brian. Maybe that's something we should consider, right? Yeah, just I'll take a royalty. It's no big deal. <laughs> there you um, go. <laughs> so, you know, Brett mentioned this, like where you're going, problems you're solving, people moving to the cloud. Um, as you look at things like all these conversations around, um, you know, containers and uh, Kubernetes and all these other things that people are looking at, problems they're trying to solve, people doing different types of platform as a service. The real conversation there is a lack of state uh, and where people are now consuming services and things as a service, including you know, a lot of shift towards object consumption. Um, right. And so we've talked a lot about you presenting file and people being able to consume as file and caching and then removing kind of where is my data and more of it all feels right next to me. Are you, have you, are you shifting and are you already working on or are you already doing it, uh, your model where you're doing that same type of experience for object uh, and where people can actually get object for all of their different services, uh, not you presenting up object, but you actually serving object so that a cloud native type architecture could leverage you inside of, inside of their kind of stateless yet fast experience or whatever? Yeah, so another really good question. The, at the highest level, people think the difference between NAS and object is a protocol change. They think if, if they start out writing an NFS application and they just rewrite it to write, to use S3 objects, that it just works. And I think the piece of the puzzle that no one understood, not no one, but a lot of people overlook is the consistency model. And so you said that exactly right. So when you have NAS, you have exact POSIX consistency. When one guy writes a piece of data, any read that comes in, even if it's only a millisecond later, they get that exact version or they get a fail. That's what exact consistency means. You get the most recent write 
or you get a fail because you're not going to be able to get it. And that's what all NAS appliances provide. Object storage, every object store, is an eventual consistency model. You're given, a, you're being told a window so that when a write occurs, maybe in a 15-minute propagation window, all future reads will be able to read that data, but not always. I mean, imagine, imagine if you write something up to Amazon S3 and then you read it, if you're talking to the same node, you'll get the exact same data. But if you're talking to a different node in the Amazon cloud on the wrong side of the propagation path, you'll get yesterday's data. And it's not even monotonically you know, cons you know, moving towards the solution. You, sometimes you'll get, like it's very possible to write data, read the current one, then read yesterday's, and then read today's. And so that propagation window is very big and very telling. And so what what it's very different, I mean, from object storage to from from NAS. And so we provide an exact consistent front end as even as you scale up to 50 nodes. That's all the work that our guys do. Whereas object storage doesn't provide that. So we're now, as customers are trying to rewrite their applications to the cloud, we are absolutely getting asked for, you know, people are trying it. Actually, we have customers that have tried it, and then the data starts getting corrupted, and they don't know why. It's because they're getting old versions as multiple nodes are coordinating. And so I think one of the things, the directions you'll see us go in is can we provide our exact consistency, the POSIX-style exact consistency you get from NAS, can we provide that to objects? And if we can, does that even help accelerate cloud adoption? And so for, for those people who have uh, not shifted over to object but are starting to do things in um, you know, massively scale environments and you know, containers and things like that, are you seeing adoption of being able to leverage your products in various forms in these kind of new architectures? Are they, um, are they deploying your virtual appliance inside of their OpenStack environments and leveraging it for you know, at, you know, accessing file for some sort of projects? Or is this still more in the, you know, kind of traditional architecture type uh, use cases, you know, the kind of, I, you know, layered cake of, of workloads type thing. Right. So, so right now, th this is, you're absolutely pointing to a direction you're going to see of your take in the very near term. So right now, on-prem, we sell a physical box in the public cloud. So in, in Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, we support a virtual product but we absolutely see the need for a virtual product that can run in these environments and can bring this technology to that. It's just a very logical next step. So one of the, yeah, one of the questions, Brent, uh, Brent, did you want to ask it? So, no, go ahead, yeah. my friend. I got more. <laughs> I stole it for, I stole it from you. Yeah. So uh, we, we actually noticed this, right? You have a lot of virtual appliances for actual um, hyperscaler type clouds. Uh, we didn't see many note mentions of virtual appliances for on-prem. Um, right. So, you know, if I, if I go out and uh, refresh my entire data center with today's new hot, you know, let's go all hyper-converged, um, how, how can I leverage your product using the flash that's in my, you know, the, that's, you know my entire hyper-converged architecture is all flash? Is there a way today to leverage your architecture using an on-prem virtual appliance? Or would I need to get a physical appliance and then go, you know, maybe drop in a filer next to it or whatever to, to start leveraging that type of use case? Yeah, so um, today you would need to buy a physical box, okay. but it's not going to be that way uh, very much longer. 
Awesome. Without releasing too much about our direction, it's obvious what's needed next, right? Yeah, Brett and I are here to build your roadmap for you. And again, we, <laughs> you know, just royalty checks, you know, whatever works for you. Go ahead, Brett. We're naturally inquisitive. You know, we, we kind of pour through the website and, and the interviews and things like that. And, and we're, we're trying to find stuff and understand not only what you do, but where you're going. And and that was one of the things that kind of stuck out to, to both of us. Um, but that said, so... Uh, you know, I think traditionally when we think of unstructured data and NAS, we think of you know throughput versus IOPS, um, and 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 types of applications that take advantage of that are maybe very different than say high transactional, call it uh, you know uh, random workloads uh, with relational databases, etc. So, what where do you tend to focus and lean and and but even if you have a preference, is there ability for high transactional workloads with you know small file sizes and things like that to work uh, in the Avira world? Absolutely. That honestly, um, um, that is a big win for having a very large cache that is flash, because now those high transactional things can get terminated in that flash. And so I would say. You know, even going back as far as 2010, when we very first came out, this big edge core, the big win has been small file, high transactions. We have customers running database over NFS into our boxes and getting the same performance that they were getting when they ran on block storage. And it's all because of that flash component in the front. So that's a, it's, it's a very, I think if, it, if flash has done anything for us, it's enabled file services unstructured data to get to the transactional. I mean, it's not one-to-one, -one, but to get to the transactional point that, that you can get to with, with databases and things. Okay. And then what's the discussion like for you guys? Like uh, traditional shops, a lot of them are, are fiber channel um, or iSCSI, right? So, you know, this is a complete, uh, you know, other route right there. So it's NFS, SIFS, and the, I think that's that's it. Right. So what's the conversation like and are you able to to get these traditional FC and iSCSI shops to lean towards the other way and, and take advantage of, of what you guys are offering? Right. So we have a lot. Absolutely. You know, it's funny, even like if you look at Oracle and what they recommend for their customers, they um, they'll 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 say things like you can run your database on NFS. Um, you can run your database on NFS. It's easy to manage. You have snapshots. You have all these wonderful things about it, but you're gonna, you're not gonna be able to get to the performance that you could. And so then, for high performance databases, we recommend you go to Fiber Channel or, or, you know, a block-based protocol. What they're able to do is move the point that that shift over is required. So they're running bigger, higher performance databases that they wouldn't have been able to run without us. Okay. Well, that, no, I think that's cool. It's just, you know, I think you have to, there's a big investment into a fiber channel infrastructure. So, um, you know, it'd probably be a big lift, but I think the benefits uh, clearly can present themselves and the ability to work with uh, multi-workloads and not what you'd think of traditional unstructured NAS types of workloads. So we've talked about high transactional databases. Um, what about high-performance computing, analytics, Hadoop? Where do those things kind of fit into your world as well? You know, one of, one of the benchmarks that I probably should have talked about earlier um, that we were able to run, there's a, there's a NAS, industry standard NAS benchmark called SPECFS. 
And what it does is you point spec at your filer and it tells you the performance that that filer is going to achieve. We've got a very interesting spec benchmark. Um, so basically what you do is you download the spec widget, you point it at your filer, it scales up transactions until you stop responding. And then it backs up a little bit, it calls that your peak, and then it creates an, this encrypted tar file which you submit to the spec committee. And, and basically what you're posting is the limit of that your, your filer can, can get to in terms of transactions uh, on a spec workload. Well, we wanted to show everyone how effective this read-write cache could be, especially out as you're talking to cloud storage. So here's what we did. Um, one of our nodes does about 60,000 spec ops. That, so a three-node cluster then should do about 180,000 spec ops. So we ran spec in Pittsburgh against a three-node FXT in Pittsburgh against a, a local NF, NFS filer. We got 180,000 spec ops. Then we ran spec in Pittsburgh against a three-node cluster in Pittsburgh, pointed at a NFS mount point in Europe. Actually, we didn't actually put it in Europe, but what we did is we ran a WAN emulator of 150 millisecond round trip latency with drop packets. In that use case, we got 180,000 spec ops. Then we ran spec in Pittsburgh against a three-node cluster in Pittsburgh against a local object store. We did Ampla data, um, CleverSafe, SwiftStack. We got 180,000 spec ops. Then I think the one that really confused the spec committee was we ran spec in Pittsburgh against a three-node cluster in Pittsburgh. We put the data up in S3. And we didn't even use Direct Connect to get there. We went out across the public internet. We posted 180,000 spec op posting for that use case as well. So the big point of this is as the, the edge filer, the FXT, drive your performance, drive your enterprise NAS experience. The data could be stored anywhere. So the big point was for customers, put our hardware if you're on-prem, put our software if you're up in the cloud, and now we don't care where the data is, and neither will your applications. Well, there's something to be said for consistency. That 180,000 seemed to be uh, <laughs> right at that level where you needed to be across the board. So very cool. So we've, uh, we, we've seen you talk a lot about all these different workloads, right? And of course, by the way, if you have a, if you have a DBA who is uh, bold enough to run their uh, you know, highly transactional database against a, uh, you know, basically a NAS head, um, I want to talk to them because that's an, that's an, that's an odd DBA who doesn't have the, the risk <laughs> gene that I see most DBAs have. So, um, you know, as we, as we look at this, you've mentioned a lot of different things, right? Transactional NAS, you know, high performance. We've talked a little bit about analytics and some of the other things, use cases, um, certainly programmatic use cases. A lot of times when you hear NAS, you think of things like home durs and sync and share and those kind of things. We haven't really talked about those things. So is that not really a focus of what you're really, what your market is, right? Have you really said, ah, we'll let other people capture that, those workloads because they are what they are. And we really think that our use case is, is much more aligned to, you know, basically, you know, application use and other workload use or why have we not talked about that? Is it just because Brent didn't ask the question right or? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, we, we definitely have customers doing um, more uh, sync and share, home dirt uh, type usage. I think, though, our target is really helping enterprise adopt the cloud. And so for home dirt, it turns out sync and share, you know, a, a Dropbox experience is acceptable. 
You know, you drag your files onto your Dropbox folder and then you wait 20 seconds, 30 seconds, minutes for them to land. And then you can send an email to some user and then uh, the other person will go get, get it. So I think it just goes to the point that for homeders, that Dropbox experience is acceptable, whereas for enterprise workloads for applications, it's not. And really what Avere does, it maintains the NAS experience even when you have that latency to the bulk storage. So, so really, I think the big adoption is for use cases where that, that sync and share, that Dropbox experience is not acceptable. So we can certainly play there as well. It's just that people tolerate it. And, and there's a level of acceptance to allow the users to wait for the right time. And as you, as you, uh, you know, speaking of, I was going to make a joke about, you know, my kids' pictures need to be on flash and cached, but, uh, <laughs> uh, it, you know, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, enterprises can rent your appliance and uh, apply it to their Amazon or Google experience from a per minute or whatever basis. Is your, is it this easy of a consumption model that somebody could, you know, simply go into the, uh, Amazon or Google store, pick your NAS caching experience and apply it to their application development without ever talking to you or does it require some sort of relationship and some sort of sales process to be able to put that into their development architecture and part of their application experience? Yeah, so right now it's um, we use what's called the BYOL, bring your own license model. We have a, a small app, which is a cluster manager. That's what we give to our customers. They contact Avere, they come to us. We to, to date, we know who all our customers are. We give them a cluster manager that runs up in the cloud and then it manages the clusters. It starts up the instances, and then it puts our licenses, it puts our software on it, and then it runs. But you, you can imagine over time that we can make that simpler and simpler and eventually not even need to have an Avere employee involved. So I got a question for you, Ron. Um, so if we look at uh, you know, the, the, the traditional kind of object model, right? It's geo-replicated. You can access it from anywhere in the world and no matter where the data sits and it may be replicated in other places. Um, how does Avere tackle geo-replication from the front end NAS appliance portion or is that not something uh, currently being uh, supported? Right, so, so the way you have to get access to the edge filer if you want it to be consistent. So the way you should think about it is this. Um, um, if you talk to the edge filer, it's guaranteed POSIX consistent. Any writes gets reflected in reads. If you go around us and talk to the core filer around us, that's only eventual consistency. So we have a write back queue in our edge filer that's writing data back. We do have customers, very experienced, knowledgeable customers that have architectures that allow them to go talk to the back. Um, but they have to understand that we can only guarantee the data is eventually there. You can actually guide our edge filer for how frequently it updates the back end. If you, if you make the frequency too high, though, you'll start to pay for that in bandwidth as we're writing data more often. But we do have customers that allow you to talk to the core. So, so given that, um, then the way you understand it is this. If, you're, if you can talk to the edge filer cluster where the data was written, it's absolutely guaranteed consistent. Getting access to that edge filer cluster is easier up in the clouds because you can run that you know, more broadly across the cloud infrastructure. If not, 
you can go to the core filer directly, but only at that point it becomes an eventual consistency model. Okay. Okay. Um, geez, I just had a, a question um, yeah. and I forgot it already. Well, you can keep thinking. <laughs> you keep thinking and I'll steal the microphone as usual. Um, so, you know, you, you, you know, Brent really mentioned kind of the geo idea behind uh, NAS, which is kind of the, really the biggest. With, even when I was a customer, it was always like, man, I wish I had a NAS that had that kind of, you know, consistency, but across multiple different regions. And then you right. see something where you apply your NAS to something like Amazon, where it has multiple regions. And the natural thought process is, well, I can put, uh, you know, a couple of uh, appliances in one availability zone and put a couple of appliances in another. And I could get some sort of NAS experience with consistency across multiple zones. It sounds like you've said that's not really the way it works, that your cluster manager will manage it and kind of say, no, these all need to be in the same zone. Or could you have literally, you know, them spread across multiple zones and that just simply impacts your front end performance? Is that like which one of those is the is the correct answer or are they both the correct answer? Great. No. So right now you're 100 percent consistent in each zone across zones. It's eventual, but you can guide us to what that latency is. And the way we do it is we bounce the data off the core filer. So if you tell us you want to be exact consistent on one location, but you want to know that any other location will see the updates within 10 minutes, we'll set a write back time and a, and a, a, a refresh time on the filers. Maybe we'll set them at five and five. And then so that we can guarantee to bounce the data off the core filer in five minutes. And then the other, the other edge clusters will check every five minutes and be able to pull that data down. So right now you set what the eventual consistency maximums are between sites. But I can, you can definitely imagine a world where the clusters would, would have access to each other and then be able to, to do it more exactly consistent. But today, I think you said it right. It's exact consistency on, based on location or based on zone. And then across locations or zones, you can set a time, a max time for the eventual consistency. All right. Makes sense. So now the question finally came back to me. So customer has data living on their own existing NAS or they've got it out you know, in the public cloud on, say, uh, S3 or something like that. Um, you put this uh, appliance in front of it. Um, you know, in, in the NAS world, obviously, there's a file system layout. Uh, it knows how it is. The objects are just objects kind of laid out in that bucket. Um when you put this appliance in front of it, how is it ingesting and kind of getting the metadata and all that kind of stuff and ensuring that the the right data is on the 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 the, the appliance flash tier uh, versus just kind of all of it? Or what's the what's that methodology? Great. So you know we didn't we didn't talk about this, but in the very beginning, remember I talked about there were two camps. There were people that were just sticking in a read cache, or there were people that were doing everything in flash. And we kind of took this middle, the hard road almost, which is doing a read-write cache in front of someone else's namespace. Well, the reason there weren't a lot of people going down our path is that's a hard problem. And that's what our guys spend their time on. And, and really what it means is this. When a write comes in from the client, we have to act it. We want 100% cache hit rate on writes. So we ACK writes, we ACK, you know, data, metadata, directory, ACLs, everything. And it's only hours later when we try to write it back that we figure out how that affects the namespace on the core filer behind us. So in NAS optimization, when you put a NAS box behind us, 
Actually, that's a much harder problem for us because we create a namespace that the user sees and then we have to guarantee that hours later when we write it back, we can map that user-facing namespace to the namespace that exists on the NAS box behind us. That's where our IP is. That's what enables a read-write cache in front of NAS. So it turns out if you put an object store behind us, that mapping goes away because we can write the data natively in our namespace format. And so that's the difference. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, so to if you were on a, on a NAS, you know, as a NAS core today, effectively you would have to read all the data out and then and then rewrite it back onto the the core NAS. Is that a true statement? No, it's not. No, we leave it in I place. I missed that. <laughs> no, no, no. So we learn that mapping. No, 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 no. I, I think it might have been my explanation, Brent. So I'm sorry. We learn that mapping two ways. We learn it out the front. When we create the data, we create that mapping, but we also allow you to put us in cold in front of pre-existing data, and then we learn that mapping from user reads of directory listings. And so we, th this, is, this is why this is such a hard problem. We create the namespace out front, but we have to learn it from the back as well. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you've, you've been mentioning, we've been talking about cache again, and while Brent was talking and kind of, uh, you know, rehashing some of those things around really caching workloads, and again, you look at how people might be able to do those things, it reminded me of a company that, you know, just in the past couple of years was a startup, you know, year 2008, and this is in the last three, four years, where Pernix kind of popped up and said, hey, we're going to kind of sit in the, the VMware world and help, you know, kind of cache, like you said, you know, cache the reads and can't really do read write so much probably could do read write at some point and they sat in there and said we're going to make your nfs experience better right we're going to help you out with those kind of things and it was a primarily software experience as best i knew um and really kind of got you know a lot of popularity for a little bit for those people who are using nfs and maybe they had some older nfs that they hadn't put in a bunch of the flash cache cards or whatever um and it was interesting did you were you already solving that problem for users who had workloads, virtualized workloads, whatever, on NFS, where you basically just put in your appliance and accelerated their virtualized environments um, before Pernix even popped up? Were you aware they popped up? And you're like, man, we've been solving this for years. You know, what, what was that kind of process? Or did I just bring up a company that, you know, basically didn't even blip on your radar? No, no, you, you, you nailed it. We, we, we had been doing it since, what, we started in 2008. We shipped in 2010. Our product has been doing it all along. I think the difference is, we targeted general purpose NAS, of which VMware, VDI is one of the use cases. And then you see a lot of these little companies sprung up that targeted very specifically that, making the management easier, easier to plug into the management interface, just making it easier to get into that specific workload. But the more general problem, that has been in our bellhouse ever since we started. That's awesome. So another, you know, another thing we always love to ask people because it's a great way to learn about the kind of users and we you know we love users because you can, I mean, as a consumer, I used to think of crazy things that I, if they had just like one more notch on their belt, I could have done something crazy with this product and really solved a, a unique problem in a different way than they probably were thinking about. Do you have customers who come in and consume your product and you're thinking, man, this is where we, we fit 95% of the time. And then that customer gets their way out and like left field and they solve some problem you never even saw coming but it's a really cool use case. Those are the kind of fun ways we see people leveraging technology. Do you, have a, do you have a cool story to share with us or is it like the NSA and you're not allowed to talk about it? No, no, no. The, the, 
how we got into the cloud is exactly that story. We we told our customers um, constantly, you know, we would we wanted our edge filer right next to the core filer, and it was all about hiding disk latency. And then we had one of our customers. It was a media and entertainment customer who spun up um, who spun up a location in um, up in Vancouver and wanted the users to have access to the data on prem. And then all of a sudden, our support guys are getting calls about how not only are we not one or two switch hops away between the edge file and the core filer, they're going through firewalls and NATs. And our support guys are like, what the heck is this? And we learned that they moved three of the boxes up to Vancouver and were supporting this remote office back down to where the data center was. And, and all of a sudden, and then the, so at some point the guy says, well, was I supposed to do this? And our support guy's like, uh, no, but it's working. So let's, you know, go with it. That's awesome. That's a good support person, by the way. I, yeah. I like, I yeah. like that he comes from a place of yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, cool. Ron, uh, you've, you've provided a, a lot of knowledge for us. Is there anything that we missed on the Avere product line, uh, that, uh, you want to cover before we close this thing out? No, but you've already knocked down two items on my roadmap. So I just need you guys to, we got to get back together once a year. You can tell me what I'm doing in 2018 next time. Yeah, we've got <laughs> um, brainstorm, brainstorming services by the Hot Isle, uh, you know, our, our, our media division. We are happy to sit down with your team and think up crazy things and tell you where we think you should go. Uh, and then all residuals can be written out and we'll share it appropriately. So <laughs> There you go. Uh, You're two for two, man. You yeah. nailed it on this call. <laughs> yeah, awesome. <laughs> Well, cool. So, uh, uh, Avir Systems, Ron, anybody on your team, uh, where can we find you guys next? Trade shows, presenting anywhere, AWS, whatever it may be. You know, um, Amazon reInvent, Amazon, Google, they're big conferences. NAB, we're out there because we're very big in media entertainment. And, of course, on our website, AvirSystems.com. Okay, awesome. And you've got a, a Twitter handle. It's at Systems. Uh, anywhere else, you guys? I know you're on YouTube as well, but um, where else can we find you from a from a social sphere? You know, the 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 website is definitely the starting point because it all branches out from there. Okay, sounds good. And then a uh, another question. This can be tech related or just a personal preference or interest. But uh, what books or websites do you follow that you can recommend to our listeners? You know, books or websites, The Register is probably where all of us go, right? Me and all of engineering, we follow those guys and they kind of lead us everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, we had Chris Miller on. And, uh, Chris Miller, you know. I love that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah he, is, he is a hoot, that's for sure. Yeah, like if you ever want to have a conversation about uh, panel wagons, Chris is your guy. Well, Porsches oh, as well. Porsches and panel wagons. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure to bring that up next time I see him. The thing I love about Chris is, I don't know where he comes up with his intel, but he always seems to be accurate. And I'm sure the, cust- <laughs> yeah. the, the companies don't want that information leaked out, but the guy's pretty good. Yeah, well, we asked him like that. Like, dude, how do you keep track of these changes? He goes, it's a big Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's so awesome. Just years just and years of data. Store it on our server. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. Awesome. Uh, so, Ron, want to thank you very, very much for being on the Hot Isle today. To all of our listeners out there, please 
get social with us. Let us know how we're doing, what you like, what you don't like. We just had a, a recent listener let us know that uh, there were some things he didn't like. So um, happy to listen. And we're also keen on understanding what you guys want to hear next, right? Without you guys, uh, we don't thrive. So please get social with us. With that, we're going to shut down the hot out today. My name is Brent Piotti. And I'm Brian Carpenter. And Ron, thanks for being on today. Thanks, gentlemen. It was a lot of fun. Was I supposed to hit the record button? No.